Hello, America. I'm Robert Reese, and welcome to CEO Show. We're here today with Miles Nadal. How are you, Miles? I'm terrific, and it's a pleasure to be here, Robert. And it's really a pleasure to be with you because Miles is the founder and executive chairman of Peerage Capital. And for those of you who know or don't know, this has become a company that he built from scratch to over a billion dollar company with 8,500 people. It is a unique company, but even more interestingly is he has this unique set of principles and truly unique. So tell us what the organization is and then tell us about what these principles of business are. So uh, the business is what I would call a reverse family enterprise. Uh, the first, I borrowed $500 from my Visa card 43 and a half years ago. First two people I hired were my parents and the business evolved over this period of time. Uh, we are a major player in self-storage. That's one of our uh, platforms. We have 30 self-storage sites. We have 3 million square feet all in and around Ontario and the GTA. Um, we are a major player in the residential land assembly business. We, are, we have about 5.5 million square feet. We have a significant asset management business across North America with around $16 billion of third-party money. And the lastly is we're a substantial player, probably the fourth largest player in North America in the real estate services space, where we will sell between 70 and $80 billion of residential real estate. New construction is about 20% of that. The other 80% of it is resale of residential real estate, principally under the brand of Sotheby's International Realty, where we are the largest operator around the globe. As you said, we have about 8,500 employees, and this is a business that started from scratch. As we built the business, we established principles by which we could build the organization and institutionalize the value system and cultural belief of the organization. And our 12 principles are as follows. Only partner with people that you truly like, admire, respect, and trust. Only partner with people you're prepared to have breakfast, lunch, or dinner with a second time. Only partner with people that you're prepared to have a long weekend in a small cabin, small boat, small ranch, or small RV. Only partner with people that are kind to animals. If you aren't kind to your animal, you're not a person who want, we want to have as our, our organization. Um, only partner with people that have the same passion, dedication, and willingness to sacrifice for the common mission. Only partner with people that have the human compassion gene. If you don't want to give time, talent, or treasure to the benefit of others, you're usually selfish. Uh, only partner with people that have the understanding that God gave you two ears and one mouth in proportion for a reason. Use them accordingly. Only partner with people that are understanding that our success in life is about who luck. It's about the people we meet along the journey and the good fortune we have, sometimes just spontaneously. And the last one is only partner with other people who understand arithmetic. If you can't count, you usually can't meet time-bound and measurable objectives, and you have no business to be in business. At the end of the day, we're trying to establish principles and qualitative values that we say will be lasting, that they will make a positive impact 
on the organization's results, but more important, impactful on the culture and values and beliefs of the organization. So you talked about arithmetic. Let's look at the other part of intelligence. How do you analyze when you're going to hire someone their, their level of intelligence that they'll have the capacity to work with you? So we think that there are two things. Um, we, we actually think there are three elements that are important to us, IQ, EQ, and NQ. IQ, how much processing power does that person have? Warren Buffett had a great quote. He said, if you have 150 IQ, give away 30 points to your best friend. You don't need it. Um, we do obviously get attracted to people that have big ability to understand complex things, that read a lot, that are very intellectually curious, that ask a lot of questions. Um, but we really care about their ability to ask about the things that they don't know and to not make assumptions. And the more curious they are, in our opinion, the more we feel that they will be successful because they will work and interact with their colleagues to get to a better answer. EQ, we think EQ is even more important. How well do you read a situation? How well do you read the ability to get along with other people? How well are you able to make a judgment to understand not the possibilities of a successful outcome, but the probability of a successful outcome? And the last one, which I think has been probably most important in my success in life, is NQ, network quotient. How well are you able to find interesting people, follow up with them, establish relationships, and pursue opportunities to network together, to identify opportunities to do things with people that you never would have thought so. Um, I've, I've met the most remarkable people through really three questions. Who are you and what's your name? Where are you from and what do you do? And I do that whether I'm at a Starbucks, whether I'm at an ice cream store, whether I'm traveling with my children, I'm at a swimming pool, whether I'm at a golf club or I'm at a tennis club or I'm at a sporting event. I have met remarkable people and those people have enabled me to do things and to meet others and to find transactional opportunities and establish friendships along the route that I never would have otherwise. You have about two minutes before a commercial break. Give me an example of how, when you're networking, you go about creating a new opportunity that you would not have even considered prior to that. Are there well, questions you ask them, or how do you figure that out? I try to ask them questions to get to know them as a human being, not in their professional capacity. I want to know about them, their family life, their children, what they learned from their parents, what's the most important value that they ascribe to teach their children, all kinds of things that really take people off their normal game as being the CEO or an operator of a business. I then get their information. I always follow up with a personal note. I always tell them that it was a privilege to meet them, that I hope we can establish a relationship. We collect cars and sneakers. I have a world-class collection of, of classic cars and probably the foremost collection of sneakers. 
I send them a very large book on each with a personal note, and it makes a lasting impression. I then invite them to come see our museum in Toronto if they ever do want to. And I say, if you want to bring any family, friends, friends of family, family of friends, you should do so. And sometimes I will put them on a list. I have an email list of about 2,000 people that I send articles to every day. If I find something interesting, I have a distribution list. And it could be anything from a great quote about life or humanity or community or charity, or it could be something that I read about because Warren Buffett said something or Howard Marks from Oak Tree said something or some other interview on some media that I thought would be relevant. And I get all kinds of calls from people saying, thank you. I'm sharing this with other people. I appreciate your generosity. This is Robert Brees on the CEO show where we interview the CEOs who have reinvented the fabric of America. And right now we're speaking with Miles Nadal. And when we come back after the commercial break, we're going to ask him, what was the biggest challenge he had to overcome building from putting $500 on his visa to building a billion dollar enterprise back in a few. Hi, this is Robert Brees back on the CEO show and we're with Miles Nadal. And this is a guy who you've heard from has exceptional, thoughtful, personal view of life in terms of really caring about people, wanting to be with people, but creating together to make the pie bigger. So you you started out, you borrowed $500 on your visa, ended up with a billion-dollar organization, 8,500 people. What was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome, and what did you learn from that challenge? So show me an entrepreneur who started from scratch. I'll show you someone who has perpetually overcome adversity. Um, Friedrich Nietzsche said, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. I started in 1980. Interest rates went from 11 to 22%. We went public on Friday, October the 16th of 87, the day before Black Monday. If you remember, the Dow went down 512 points on March on on, on Monday, um, Monday, October the 19th. Um, we started our marketing and advertising expansion in 2001, right before the internet bubble burst. We got into the real estate services business in 2007, 2008. World wasn't bad, it was non-existence in the financial crisis. We expanded uh, in the middle of the COVID meltdown. So every time we've done something, there's usually been some kind of adversity that has followed. But, you know, as all other entrepreneurs, I think that Elon Musk said it best. He was interviewed in 60 Minutes by Scott Pelley, and he said he was down to his last $30 million, and he was trying to finance um, SpaceX and Tesla. And Scott Pelley said, would you ever consider quitting? He said, no, I'd have to be dead or incapacitated. Most entrepreneurs, when they go through adversity, um, they buckle down and they put their head down. In my case, my parents were the first two people I hired. So I had no choice but to keep motoring on because otherwise I would have been in trouble and so would my entire family. 
there's, you know, every time that we've done something material, there has been a setback. But no, we would never allow any pothole to become a sinkhole. And everything that I focused on in the face of adversity was, how do we get through this? What can we do? How can we marshal resources to buy us time? Because I believe, as King Solomon said, this too shall pass. And in every case, over 43 years, the bad is never as bad as you think it is, and the good is never as good as you think it is. And so you need to buy yourself time because time settles all woes. Let's talk about the concept of succession planning, because you've already spoken how do you build things. You have many different types of businesses you're in. What's the secret to that? So the first thing is it's a huge priority for me, not only for my own succession, but succession within the organization at at, at Peerage Capital, the parent company, and also in each of the, I don't know, 30 or 40 partner firms. We focus on that. The first principle I have about succession is focus on succession while it's on your mind and where you still believe that your dreams exceed your memories. People focus on succession too late in life when they're at the twilight of their career. I started this concept, what I call LAM, life after milesy, when I was 55 years of age. And I said, despite the fact that I have lots of energy, I t- when I turned 65, I wrote a note that said, I plan to retire. Contrary to people's popular belief about me, I'm going to retire five years after I pass away. But I am not the CEO of any business. I am the principal shareholder. Sometimes I'm the chairman. But I have said to our people, what you need to do is focus on succession so that you plan for two, three, five years in advance. But how do you train the people to be your successor so that they are able to understand that role and they're not thrown into it in the face of adversity? I have a fantastic successor. His name is Trevor Maunder. He's 50 years young. He's been with me for 23 years. And for the last five years, I made him the CEO and we shadow each other and we speak all the time. And it's almost as much that we've developed a loving friendship as we've developed a professional partnership. But the ability to be with me and learn over the years is irreplaceable in understanding not only skills and expertise, but understanding the cultural values that I have built the business with, of which he and the people that report into and with him share those values. So that God forbid, when I'm not here, I hope I'm here for another 30 years, but if I'm not here, the organization will continue on both functionally and culturally. And that's critical because long-term institutional success is a bit of an oxymoron, not because the functional capabilities don't exist, because the values of the founder get dissipated and lost. And that's something we focused a lot about. Fascinating. So you talked about the past. Let's talk about the future. What is your vision for Miles Nadal? What are you going to be doing over the next, say, for start, next 10 years? 
do you plan ahead and say, I want to do one, two, three, four, five, or do you just, which is more of an inductive way, or do you do it more of, of deductively where you just, you see what emerges and see what opportunities come? How do you look at it? I think it's both, Robert. First of all, one of the things is as the business evolved, I was the principal architect of vision. Today, I would say to you that I am a key contributor, but there are so many of our senior leadership and partners who are encouraged to contribute ideas of potential opportunities we should pursue. And I think the idea of the young aspiring business student who meets the successful businessman Ask them, how did you become so successful? The older gentleman looks at him and said, I jump at my opportunity. But the young entrepreneur says to Mr. Reese, Mr. Reese, there's so many opportunities in the world. How do you know which ones to jump at? Robert says, I don't, I just keep jumping. I have found so many of these opportunities that I wasn't looking for. I'll give you an example. I was sitting on my boat about three years ago And Trevor Mondra, our CEO, said, I found a fantastic opportunity. He said, there are two characteristics that you will not like. One, it will require you to read single space type. I said, Trevor, I don't read single space type. You have to tell me a story like I'm an eight-year-old. He said, I can't. He said, I said, are you going to send me a document? He said, no, I'm going to send you two and you have to read them. It's fascinating. The second thing you won't like is it's a startup. said, Trevor, I've had eight hair transplants, got limited donor area left. I don't want a startup. This is a business all about the co-ownership of residential real estate. Simple terms, there are 2.7 million people in Canada who want to buy a home. 20% of the people in Canada who rent want to buy a home, only 5% can afford them. It resonated for me because we were poor. We never owned a home. And the reason why we never owned a home is we never had the down payment. And the down payment is the single biggest determinant of why people don't buy a home. So we put up up to 75% of the equity of the down payment of a home. The owner puts up 25%. We now have 150 people we've done that with in the last 12 months. We think there can be 10,000 people in Canada who will own a home in partnership with Peerage. And it's through a company called Our Borough. I never knew about the business. I never thought about the business. I never thought it was a relevant business until it was brought to my attention. So there will be all kinds of things. My personal mission, besides building our enterprise, is I have a stated goal to give away $180 million in my lifetime. There's a great quote from Forrest Witchcraft. He said, A hundred years from now, no one will ever remember the car you drove, the house you you lived in, or for that matter, how much money you had in your bank account, but the world may be a different place if you made a difference in the life of a young person. So our goal as a family is to give away $180 million in my lifetime to causes around healthcare, education, supporting entrepreneurship, helping those people less fortunate, And um, that's in Canada, United States, and Israel. I've given away a third of that already, and it's my goal to give away the other two-thirds in my lifetime. And then my estate will continue um, to do so where 20% of the income uh, in perpetuity will go to charitable organizations. 
I've done something I thought was fun and I think will be valuable. I, I have one of the largest collections of Air Jordan sneakers in the world. We have about eight or 900 pair. I have contributed that to a charitable foundation and that and all the other collectibles around sneaker culture is going to be auctioned off by Sotheby's, the auction house upon my passing and all that money will go to underprivileged children. So I get the benefit of being able to enjoy them in my lifetime, share them with family, friends and colleagues, but ultimately it, the proceeds will be auctioned off and that will go to uh, those less fortunate, which is something that motivates me. Final question, but I just want a one word answer or maybe a phrase. What is the most important thing that motivates you? Not a sentence. I want just a one word or phrase. My legacy. And there you have it. Everyone, you have just been listening to Miles Nadal, uh, an icon who has not only built something incredible, but he's passing down principles to people. And then he's passing down a legacy where he's going to have people growing, succeeding. He's going to be contributing to the world to make it a better place. What a pleasure it is to have you on the CEO show. Can I just ask you one thing? What is the website of your company if someone wants to look it up? And I know you've many companies. www.peeragecapital.com. P-E-E-R-A-G-E capital.com. Miles, congratulations on your tremendous work and contributions to the world. You're very kind. It's an honor and a privilege to be part of your show. And uh, I was very appreciative of your thoughtful questions. 